when we read scripture sometimes just to show God that we really believe that this is his word and that he's speaking to us through these words. So that's why we stand sometimes. Um, and these verses especially are near and dear to my heart. And I hope just in hearing them that you are filled with so much hope today. Um, so please listen to scripture from Ephesians 2. We're going to be reading 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning, I'll ask that you would pray with me because my body... My body is not, doesn't want me up here this morning. I got the wampus. We called it the wampus back in Pittsburgh. Um, so uh, please bear with me prayerfully. There's grace for that. That was a little joke. There you go. Somebody got it. <laughs> All right. So we are in uh, week nine of our 10-week series on remembering our redemption. Uh, and this is us taking 10 weeks to look at in a little bit more detail, the meta-narrative of the gospel. So we started with creation. Just a little reminder. We started, I should quiz you. We started with creation. We moved to the fall of man. And from there we saw, man, sin has entered into the world, but God did not abandon his creation. Hence, we had the covenant that he made with Abraham, saying that he would establish him as, as a nation and then bless all nations through him. So then after that covenant that he made with Abraham, we saw him live that out and actually do that for the nation of Israel in Passover. That was the first Passover where we could see God's grace evident there. And then after that Passover, we were able to kind of stop and step back and say, okay, Lord, so now what are you doing? Who are you? He is the king. And so we looked at the kingdom of God. And from there, we, we moved a little bit further forward and just trying to imagine. I love, there's a song that, that I listened to by a guy named The Truth, and he talks about how, you know, there's this gap, there's this silence between Malachi and Matthew, just years and years of nothing, waiting for the coming king. And then we have the incarnation where we see Christ come. And everyone's so happy, they're thrilled. Christ is here, Christ is here. Yes, Messiah is here, only to see him go on the cross to then die. And now what? Our Savior is dead, and from the cross we saw the glorious resurrection last week. So thankful that AJ came uh, and led us in that, uh, just that we, could, we would be able to step back and kind of stop and say, we continue to look for life in things that are dead, in things that are going to lead us to death. But thank you, Lord, for rising from the dead. And in our community group, we talked about living victoriously and thinking victoriously because of the great victory that was won over death and the resurrection. And so now we come to grace. We come to grace, and we're going to look and see 
how God applies Christ's work on the cross to us. It's in this word or in this concept of grace. And so we talked about the meta-narrative. The meta-narrative in four parts is creation and fall. Then we see redemption. And redemption takes up the majority of history recorded in Scripture. Grace fits into that redemption piece. We haven't quite gotten to restoration yet, but it's coming. It's coming. And so one thing that I wanted to point out here, one last uh, introductory point, is that a lot of people say you got to learn verses 8 and 9 from this chapter. You need to know verses 8 and 9. Memorize it. And that's really good. It's really important. It summarizes for us uh, the gospel and God's work for us. But we have to take a step back in order to properly understand and see the magnitude, the full magnitude of grace. We have to look at this entire passage. But before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, again for today. Thank you so much for bringing us here together, that we can fellowship with one another, that we can see and hear each other, that we can hug each other by the neck and just put our, extend a hand of, of fellowship and shake someone's hand and tell them, man, it's good to see you. Thank you for bringing us together. We know that we would not be the body of Christ if it was not for your grace. We know that we would not, we would not have any hope if it was not for your grace. We know that we would be stuck in the rut of our sin and that, that painful cycle if it was not for your grace. So Lord, as we come to look at these things, I pray that you would open up our hearts to be able to receive what you have to say. Holy Spirit, please move on us today. I pray that you would unite us in a desire to understand and then apply your grace. Lord, please hide me behind the cross. Father, that uh, all here and anyone who hears this later, Lord, would simply be hearing you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these and all things. Amen. All right. So, two main points today. You see them in your bulletins. The first one is trying to define grace. Trying to define grace. And the definition that we're going to go with is one-way love. Now, before we get into really breaking that down, a couple of additional things here. Part of the reason we have to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and not just 8 and 9, is that 1 through 10 is really one long sentence in the Greek. In the original language, there were no commas and periods and hyphens and things like that. And we know that uh, as a, for, for the purpose of us understanding and being able to reference different parts of Scripture, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were all added later. This was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And somebody got up there and they read this whole sentence. Talk about a run-on, right? That bothers some of the English teachers in here, I'm sure. But this one long sentence, and the purpose is we, we can't just take a piece of it and say this is, this is what grace is. We have to step back and see the whole thing to really get the magnitude of it. This is one overarching thought with multiple tangential phrase, phrases, and something that's really important, I think, is we, we, we have a tendency to come to the scripture and we look at it sometimes and, and we think it's always about us. We think that we're the subject, right? We look at this and it starts, and you were dead. And so our first thought is we start thinking about us, which is very good and very important. But because of the structure of this sentence, of this passage, we see that we're not the subject. God is the subject. This is about God and who he is and what he has done. 
We are the object. We're the ones that are being acted upon. You say, wait a minute, Aaron, come on. You say, and you were. That's a be verb. So, I mean, that's, what's it pointing to? That's pointing to us. That's a sentence right there. I understand what you're saying, but it's just a description of our condition. This is a, a very wordy Pauline description of our condition. And he's trying to connect a couple of major thoughts here. And it starts in verse 1, and you were dead. And then he comes back to it in verse 5, even when we were dead. Everything between there is tangential, parenthetical, to help us to kind of understand the magnitude of our deadness. And we see these key verbs. They're not the be verbs of we, we were by nature children of wrath. The key verbs are that he made us alive. He raised us up. And seated us. That's what God is doing to us. So why is this so important? It's so important because it shows us what Paul and, and therefore what the Holy Spirit is trying to impress upon our hearts and trying to establish a fundamental truth. And I pray, this is my, my main prayer for us today, that we would understand and know and rest in and have hope because God has acted upon us because of and through his grace. God has acted upon us because of and through his grace. Now, as we look to define grace, I thought about just going with just the definition, but it's, so, it's very important. I know for me, for my background, and, and maybe for some of you, and if not for you, then someone that you might talk to, all right? For us to understand what grace is not, okay? I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a children's story. I don't remember it exactly, if it was a duck or a chicken or whatever it was, but there's this little bird that's walking around, that's walked through the farm, and it walks through the farm. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? And everybody's saying, no, no, no. And it's just trying to figure out what, who its mother is. And so you def I'm looking at just defining it first with what this is not. Grace is not the law. Grace is not the law. Grace is the exact opposite of the law. You see, the law, the capital L law of God, the, the law is God's list of what we should and should not do. It's, it's God saying, in order for you to be conformed to the image that I want you to be conformed into. You have to do all of this or not do all of these other things. And, you know, when we, when we see that and we, when we hear that, for many of us, that's exactly what, like AJ mentioned last week, that's, that's what turns a lot of people off from the faith. So it's a list of do's and don'ts. I don't want a list of do's and don'ts. And so it ends up becoming a weight. It ends up becoming a bit of a burden for us. But the beautiful thing about this is, as people in, in the, all throughout history, including the, the nation of Israel, they looked at this and, and they were essentially working to obtain or maintain love. They were trying to obtain or maintain the, the grace or the, the favor of God. They were trying to, if nothing else, abate his wrath. Okay, oh, so if I don't do these things, then I might be swallowed up by the earth or something like that, like he did in the Old Testament. And so people were trying to push these things, were trying to, to keep God's wrath away or find a way in order to be able to gain his love. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And this is important for us to understand. The law sets boundaries on our speech and on our conduct and even on our thoughts and our intentions. The law, it has the objective of conforming us into the heart image that it wants us to be. And it's from God, so it's what God wants us to be. Trying to put restrictions on us to bring us into his image. This is the law that I'm talking about, not grace. And so I think you think about a laser. You guys know what a laser is, right? I'm not trying to insult you. You know what a laser is, but how a laser works, okay? So light by nature emanates in all directions from its source. By nature, it goes every direction. You have to put a lampshade over a lamp and make the light go down onto the table. Otherwise, it blinds everybody that comes into the room. And so a laser is light where they have taken it and they have they've redirected it and they've focused it and they've put restrictions on that light and they've increased its strength and its magnitude of what it can accomplish because of those restrictions. And so a laser, we can use it to point at things on the wall, but we can also really increase that intensity to the point where it can cut through solid objects, light. It can cut through wood and metal, cut through flesh and bone. And thankfully, the Lord has helped us to learn how to do these things. That's what the law is doing. It's trying to conform us into this image. And I just, in my, in my imagination, I just picture us, if, if we could do it, if we could be conformed into this image, how brightly we would shine to be perfect light. If we're successful in meeting all of those demands and doing all of those things, then we are conformed into the standard that God is trying to conform us into. The problem is, the problem is, by nature, someone tells us to do something, we instinctively first want to say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. Okay, wait a minute, what did you say? (laughs) By nature, our first thing is to push back. I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. And I have the freedom to do it. Don't tell me what to do. And, and, And this ends up being the reason that the law becomes a burden for us because we can't fulfill it all. We're not perfect. And in fact, we don't want to even try to fulfill it all, (laughs) right? So this is the law as it's set before us. The law therefore produces in us the opposite of its intended effect. And if nothing else, it shows us our inability to, to fulfill it, to meet its demands. Now, Aaron, why in the world are you going on and on about the law? I think this is important because Paul went on and on about the law and he talked about it in light of grace, right? But we just got done singing the song, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. Before that, what was, law, what was Paul talking about? The law in his heart, this battle, him wrestling against this. He says in Romans chapter seven, verses seven, eight, and 10, he says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not know sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kind of covetousness. Pause for a second. What's Paul saying? Is he saying he was just walking through life happily, perfectly fulfilling the law. And then when he was shown the law, shown what coveting is, he said, ooh, coveting, I'm gonna go covet, I'm gonna covet, 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 covet. 
No, he didn't. That's not what happened. What he's saying is instead he stopped and he realized what the law was showing him, the sin that was already in him. It produced covetousness because now he knew what covetousness was. It was in his heart already. Pick up at verse 10, the very commandment that promised life. You do this, you get life, you get love, you get me, I'm God, I give you everything, I am. But instead, it proved to be death to me. The law shows us how bad we are. Like Paul said further down in Romans, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. The law was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Now I know what sin is. And the prayer is that as we come to understand the law, that we would even more fully understand grace. What grace is. Now quickly, a couple of definitions of grace that I received as I was growing up and in different things. Now, <clears throat> these are not necessarily bad. Um, I just don't think that they're completely accurate. So I was once taught that grace uh, is juxtaposed against mercy, and there's a distinction between the two, that grace is uh, getting what you don't deserve from God, his favor, his goodness, his love, what you don't deserve from God, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. What we do deserve is death, pain, suffering, wrath. And so people have made that distinction. And I can kind of understand what, they, what they're saying, but that breaks down in a number of different ways. One of them is in this passage, as we said, we saw, but God who's rich in mercy. And then a little bit further down, we're saved by grace. The, the two are being used synonymously. And even in the way that we have interpreted mercy here at Veritas as, as getting up off of our blessed assurance, as I was once told, and doing something for someone. Service being active, meeting a need. That's mercy. That's love in action. It's more consistent with what Jesus was talking about uh, back when he was telling his disciples, when you've done these things for the least of them, you've done it for me. That's love in action. That is mercy. And the, another definition that I, that I was once taught is that grace, it's an acrostic grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Some of you may have heard that before. And I, again, that's not bad. I think that's good. The problem is some people in their paradigm and, and where they, their background and their foundation, they hear riches and they immediately go to God's blessing. And they start thinking about financial blessing and material things and his goodness to us revealed in what we receive from him in a tangible way. And that's not bad, but there's more than that. So this is where this definition of one-way love came from. It's from a gentleman by the name of Paul Zoll in his book, Grace in Practice. He says this, this is a really good book, and, and I would encourage everybody to check this out. Uh, he's basically take, making a systematic theology of grace and looking at theology through the lens of grace. He says this, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to do, <laughs> when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is one-way love. Grace is one-way love. So hopefully 
we've, we've established a little bit of a, of a framework for what we're going to look at today. And we'll see this borne out a little bit more as we work our way through the passage. But it's important that we understand that grace must be alone. Saving grace, sustaining grace must be grace alone. We can't add anything else to it. If it's grace and, then it's either heresy or law. And so thankfully, this is, we can see this in Romans chapter 11. We won't go there right now. Paul, is, is, uh, he's referring back to Elijah. I may come back to it later. We'll see if there's time. But, but grace, anything that you add to grace makes it something other than grace. This is extremely fundamental. So for many of us, our lives in our past, maybe even in our present, have typified legalism and not life in grace. So please be thinking and praying about this as we, uh, as we go through this, that grace might be hard to accept for some, but praise the Lord, grace is great. All right, so second point. Now that we've defined grace as one-way love, is grace applied, taking us from death to life? This is why we have to start at the beginning of this pericope. We have to start at the beginning of this passage. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. D-E-D, -E dead. I misspelled that on purpose in case you were curious. And I know there's two Ds at the end of dead. Apart from Christ, all mankind is spiritually dead. Death is the complete inability to respond to any stimulus at all. You can't get more dead than dead. Now, you may find various levels of decay, you, you might say, oh, don't put me in the same boat as Hitler. Now, don't put me in the same boat as this guy or that guy. I, I didn't do that. I didn't say this. I'm not that bad. Apart from Christ, all mankind is spiritually dead. We might be a little bit more decayed or less decayed than someone else. But this, if nothing else, this passage levels the playing field. You can see it in other places, Romans 3, a number of other places. But this passage lower, uh, levels the playing field. I looked up a medical definition of death. Death is defined as the cessation of all vital functions of the body, including the heartbeat, brain activity, including the brain stem, and breathing. Now, I personally had never really thought through everything that would have to happen in order for somebody to be dead. But this is good. This shows us the, the, the vital bodily functions that ha all have to be happening together in order for someone to be alive. Now, to me, I don't think it's an accident that God would say here that apart from Christ, that all mankind is, is spiritually dead that he's talking about death here and using this type of terminology. Think about it. With our heart, we desire things. We long for things. We, we have our, that's where we find our affections for things and for people, is in our heart. 
with our mind. That is how we know things. That's how we process the things that happen around us and happen to us. And according to Genesis, our breath is the actual essence of life given to us from God. You don't get any closer fellowship than God actually giving us life in that being in evidenced in our breath. If that is what physical life is, and God is talking about us being spiritually dead, then that means that we couldn't love, know, or fellowship with God at all. There is no way from a spiritual sense in our spiritual deadness that we could love, which is the thing that he's called us to do, that we could know him or that we can have fellowship with him. And additionally, there would be no ability for us to please God at that point. If you're dead, you can't do anything for somebody. Now, he says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Trespasses in the Greek is a word that I can't pronounce, but it's talking about God's law. Like we said, everything that he's, that he's laid out, what he calls us to do, Sins is a word that I can pronounce in the Greek. And this was really interesting when I learned this. It's hamartia is the term, and it's a hunting term. A hunting term. It talks about missing the mark. That we, hamartia, we sin, that we miss the mark of what God says we should be. Transgressing the law is what he said we should do. And it's almost like there's a personal aspect to sin against God, that we've missed his mark for what he had for us. Now, something else that I wanted to, to, to point out. In verse 3, Paul writes, and we were by nature children of wrath. By nature children of wrath. If you've not heard this before, Adam and Eve sinned. And whether it's passed down to us literally genetically, or it's passed down to us spiritually because Adam was the federal head of all mankind. In whichever direction he went, mankind would go. Adam sinned. Now, as our father, the first Adam, it's now passed down to us. We are federally by nature wrath, excuse me, uh, children of wrath, sinful beings. It's in us. It's in us. And this is important because we have to know and embrace and understand that we aren't sinners because we sin. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because of what's in us, in our heart. We sin because we're sinners. And that's what makes verse 4 and verse 5 so glorious. See, apart from God we would be stuck in our sin nature, perpetually against God, against what he calls us to, against what he has for us. And the two, I think, most glorious words ever put together in Scripture is but God. But God. And I'm telling you, my, my body is keeping me from shouting the way I want to shout. <laughs> because this... This is hope for me. This is, this is evidence of God coming and saying, I'm not leaving you there. The covenant still stands. 
We just got done celebrating the resurrection of Christ. We just got done celebrating the proof and the evidence of his victory. He was victorious over sin and death when he died. He took what we deserved. Our, our penalty was paid for in his death. The evidence of his victory was when God raised him from the dead. And praise the Lord for that. But when I look at this, this reminds me. I wasn't just sinful. I was dead. I was dead. No ability whatsoever to love, know, or have fellowship with God. He had to make me alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> what was our role in that, those two verses? What was our role? I can't hear you. What was our role? Nothing. Nothing. You know what our role was? You know what we did? We were dead. And we were made alive. <laughs> Everything happened to us. Everything happened to us. We did absolutely nothing. Both of these verbs are passive. We actively did nothing. This is one-way love. This is one-way love in action. And the cool thing about this is, this wasn't just a one-time thing where God, being rich in mercy, even though we were dead in the trespasses of our sins, made us alive. All right, here you go again. Go ahead, try again. You're alive now. Not physically, but spiritually. All right, here you go. You got another chance. Don't mess up. It's not how God treated us. It's not what God did to us. Instead, verse 6, he raised us up with him, speaking of Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To be raised up with Christ, we hear this a lot in a number of different places in Scripture. The concept of a spiritual resurrection, that we are dead to sin, that we are alive in Christ. We are dead to sin. We are now alive and slaves to righteousness. But for us to be raised up with Christ shows us that it's not about us. Christ was raised up, and God said, you are now with Christ. You can see this in a number of places in Scripture, that we, we look at what God did through raising Christ, and that gives us new life. Romans chapter 6. We're not going to go there. Write this down, please. If you would please, between now and your community group night, look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and look at the power of God saving us. And then look at verses 11 through 13 and see the power of God as it is applied to us and help us to walk this life of faith. There's so much fruit and so much just good stuff in that passage. But to be raised up with Christ, to have new life, and then to be seated with Christ, and this is important for us today, because to be seated with Christ 
is a picture of us sitting in the same position of authority that Christ sits in. Do you, I'll start with me. Do I deserve to have any authority at all, let alone on par with Christ? And the answer is no. But authority over what? Authority for what purpose? To what end? This isn't, this isn't to go around and boss people around and abuse some, some false authority that we have. This is the authority to stand in the presence of every false God, every idea, every truth that is raised up against the one true and living God. To be able to stand and say, I'm sorry, I know that's how you feel, but that is not the truth. The truth is God is God. God is good. Amen. All the time. That's right. That's right. That's right. So when we say that we have authority and we stand in confidence, this isn't just to refute what people say and to rebut against arguments that are raised up and to try to, to, try to say just in, in debates and, and things like that who God is and who we are in Christ. But this has implications for us when we start to feel the effects of our sin nature and our flesh is warring against the spirit within us, then we can stand. We have authority to be able to say no. No, not for me. That's not who I am. I'm in Christ. And so I pray that you would understand and see that this grace is not just a word. A lot of times we talk about grace. A lot of people love grace, embrace it. Grace is, is not just a word. It's power. Grace is power. Grace is active, functional, raising people spiritually from the dead, authority-granting power. Grace in our lives applied to us enables us to be who God has called us to be. Verse 6 talks about us being seated with God in heavenly places. The heavenly places is, is set against, in verse 2, the course of the world. We were walking according to the course of the world in our deadness. We were following the prince of this world, Satan. And now in life, we can walk according to a different head, a different direction. Our motivations are shifted. Our affections are shifted. Our direction, the source of our direction has been shifted to the heavenly places. Instead of us doing things and working and trying to please people in the world, trying to gain a, a appreciation and power and prestige and praise from the world, we can now come over here and instead our praise goes to heaven. The things that we do are for heaven's glory, for storing up treasures in heaven, not for things here on earth that the moth is going to eat and rust is going to destroy. This is the difference in the shift in our lives when we are made alive, raised up in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. It shifts us. The things that drive us are no longer the things of this world. Why did God do this? Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
This is the picture of the rest of our lives in Christ. Until we go to heaven. The ages to come, this isn't just for us, but it is at least to start with us for the rest of our lives until we go to heaven. The coming ages, in the coming ages, yeah, far off, way off into the future, people will be able to look back and say, yeah, I remember that dude, Aaron. He didn't deserve any of the things that he got. God's grace was active in his life. He didn't deserve to be preserved. He didn't deserve to have faith. He didn't deserve to make it through the different trials that he went through. He didn't deserve to have his body healed and come up out of the hospital. That's not what Aaron deserved. Centuries from now, prayerfully, somebody might say that. Not because I want to be in the history books, but so that people will be able to look and see the immeasurable riches of God's grace in me and in my life and in my family's life and in your lives. But for us today, the coming ages is every time we fall short of the mark, we see that the well of God's grace has not run out. Every time we fall short, every time we lash out in anger, every time we don't forgive somebody and, and harbor bitterness, every time we plunge into pornography and entertain the lusts of our, of our flesh, every time, now I'm not messing around this morning, y'all, every time we drink too much, every time we smoke too much, Every time we cross the line and cuss somebody out, either audibly or just mentally, this is all of us. We're all in, in, these, in, in, in need of God's grace and in need of this well to not run out. In the coming ages, every time we worship anything or anyone other than God, anytime we embrace our laziness, Anytime we ignore the needs of another, anytime we love money, anytime we rest in our prejudice, in our bigotry, or in our chauvinism, every time we don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, or love our neighbor as ourself, God's grace still fills the gap. That's the coming ages is every day in our lives. This continues until we get to heaven and get to celebrate the victory that God has given us on this side of glory on earth. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's important for us to know that we were not saved by good works. Instead, we were saved for good works. Those two different words change everything. We're saved for good works or unto good works, so that we would be able to do good works. Like James said, faith without works is dead, right? You say that you're going to show me your, your uh, faith by your works. That's what I want to see. I want you to show me, I want you to show me not, not your faith because of your works. I want you to show me your faith by your works, that I'll be able to see what you're doing and know that it's rooted in the faith that you have in, in Christ. 
But you know what's really cool? Is that, that word there, there's a word there, this and this is neutral in the Greek. I love this. Grace and faith are both feminine in the Greek. And so we don't do this in English. We just use the, it's the definite article, and we just, it just, you know, it doesn't have a gender. But in other languages, they do. And so if Paul was speaking specifically, specifically about grace or specifically about faith, then he would have used a, a word that had a feminine gender to it. Instead, he used this and this, and it's talking about the entire process of salvation by grace through faith is not of our own doing. We had absolutely no role, and I pray that we don't come back and then heap a role onto it after the fact. We've been saved. Rest in it. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Doesn't mean that we're off the hook and we can just sin and do whatever we want to do. Like Paul said, should, just, should uh, sin abound so that grace can abound even more? By no means. So we still have a responsibility to pursue righteousness. But we're not saved by good works. The only reason that any of our good works are good is because of grace. <laughs> That's the only reason. It's because of God's grace. The only reason that any of our ministry efforts, any of our efforts to evangelize the, our family members and our friends and our coworkers, the only reason that any conversation that we ever have with anybody for God's glory is good is because of God's grace. As I close, I want to ask this question as we try to really understand and embrace grace and embrace the life that it's brought to us. What, what laws have we made for ourselves that clearly do not bring us life? Instead, they bring death to our heart. What am I talking about? What good works make you feel like you don't deserve heaven if you fail to do them? What good works or good deeds have you said, I have to do this, and if I don't, then I don't deserve to go to heaven? This isn't just doing what God has called us to do and living righteously and pursuing righteousness. An example of this is, if I don't get up every morning and read my Bible for at least 15 minutes and pray for at least 15 minutes, then I'm, 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 I'm slipping as a Christian. And I don't, at, at that point, I go through the rest of my day and maybe look up after a week and I feel like, man, I can't believe that I haven't really been in my word like I'm supposed to. God, I just don't deserve to come to heaven. That's a law that we apply to ourselves. Many people put that law on themselves. Instead, out of love and out of the life that we've been given and through grace, God, I miss it when I don't get to talk to you. I miss it when I don't get to get into your word. I go through my day and I feel like I just, man, I, there was something that could have given me some more life and some more hope in that conversation that I had with that person. It's invariably, when I get in the word in the morning, I can, man, there's some nugget, there's some truth. I end up having a conversation with somebody where that ends up applying, invariably. It could be because it's just on the, on the tip of my tongue or on the forefront of my mind, but I believe that it's because God has, in that moment, has given me something. And so instead of heaping laws upon ourselves, Let's rest in and embrace the grace and the life that God has given us. Grace is not just a word. Grace is much more than a word. 
Grace is, is what God has acted through, and it's the reason that we are saved and known by God. And it's a means for us to have a relationship with him. So if you're here today and you have not heard this before, or if you've heard it and have not embraced it before and are continuing to try to work to save yourself or work to maintain your salvation, hear the good news of the gospel. It's by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And that's not of yourself, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. Praise the Lord for this. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for this opportunity that we've had to, to come together and to look at your word. Father, to be able to see um, and hear how you've shown yourself loving, faithful, and Lord, gracious. Thank you for your grace. For where would we be if not for your grace? We would be lost. We would be stuck in the cycle of sin, confession, pseudo-repentance, trying to avoid or, or diminish the guilt that we feel from our sin. Thank you for your grace that shows us that you came toward us. You loved us. You saved us. We had nothing to do with the process. And through it, we have life and life eternal and life abundant that we can, can move forward in this life and to speak past the physical world into the spiritual world of people's lives and hearts to direct them toward heaven. That this would be truth that gives us urgency and unction and a desire to do, not so that we will be saved by doing those good things. That we would do those good things because we've been saved. Thank you again for your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Every week we gather together we come and we, we sing songs and we pray and we read uh, different things that are on the screen together. And this is, this is called our liturgy. This is our, our way of worship. And a part of our liturgy every week is to stop, take a moment, and to come to the Lord's Supper. And to look at the example that he set for us, what he called us to do in, in remembering him through this meal. Every week, we come and we tear off a piece of bread, remembering Christ's body broken for us. And we dip it into the juice, remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And so I invite you today to come, not because this is, um, this is a law. This isn't a law. This is grace. This is us stopping and remembering the life that we have in Christ because of his sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and for dying for your body to be broken so that we might have life and have it abundantly.